Okie dokie, folks. Welcome to the Roots Report podcast, presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, Arwen Entertainment, the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island, and SC Microphones. I am your host, John Fusick. Today we have guitarist and composer Jesse Cook. He is an amazing player with millions of album sales, tens of millions of streaming plays, gold and platinum records, and Juno Awards to his credit. Jesse and his band will be at the Narrow Center for the Arts in Fall River on June. 23rd. Let's first listen to Oren from his latest CD, Libra.
I did my deep dive into Jesse Cook last night and uh, listened to <laughs> quite a bit of your stuff and act and like I said, I really liked it. It was. Um, I'm sure I will see your name now because my my girlfriend listens to a lot of uh, a lot of instrumental music on her on her XM radio station and. Oh, okay. And I see a lot of names repetitive that. I make fun of because mm. there's a certain person that comes up. I won't say his name, but there's a certain person comes up <laughs> that has a very comical name, and I make jokes about it. But okay. it's, it's not his music. I just make fun of his name. Yeah. But um, right, right, right. there's another guy, Jim Kimo West, who plays with Weird Al, who plays guitar mm. instrumentals that I see quite often. And had it not been the fact that I met him a few years back and, and like Weird Al, that I would have never known he was a an instrumental guitarist and won a Grammy. So it's like you. I, my world of music gets opened wider at doing this. I enjoy all kinds of music. It's just that sometimes I tend to gravitate towards more what I do, mm -hmm. which leaves. Oh yeah, for I sure. Mean, no. There's so much music out there. It's hard to keep up with everything. No, for sure. And I, you know, I realize what I do is off the beaten path. It, it's one of those things where, for people who like it, they become incredibly dedicated because it's so hard to find do you know what i mean because right. it's not something they come across every day so they'll they kind of go out of their way to hunt it down whereas uh you know if i was doing pop music or whatever i i think in some ways it's harder because then you're competing with a million other pop artists or right, electric right. guitar you know there's a million other electric guitar players so the the nice thing about playing the type of music that i do is that i kind of feel like the field is wide open there's not a lot of people doing that more and more i mean more you know i think since i after my first record came out and had a fair amount of success, suddenly there were other people showing up that you know I'd never heard of, and record companies were suddenly going, "Oh, well, that worked. Let's let's go find another person like this." <laughs> you know, so more recently there've been more and more people doing it. But in general, I sort of feel like the the field is wide open. There haven't been a, a gazillion guys doing kind of world music meets flamenco meets you know whatever you call this. I, I don't even know what to call it anymore. <laughs> well, the thing is, which is ironic, is that you're probably the the more talented of the group too because the dedication and the practice and the skill and the the the, uh, the artistic uh, qualities needed to produce this this kind of music is is far above pop i mean what you're doing takes talent beyond average talent i mean i know just from having studied guitar i mean my original guitar teacher was a classical guitarist and he tried to teach me classical guitar and i was like no i'm not doing that i want to play rock guitar <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's too hard, you know. You you have to be the whole band if you're if you're playing, you know, classical guitar. Now I, I want to be clear. I'm not a classical guitarist. I studied classical when I was a kid, but you know, I I stopped that. I think at about 13, I was like, I'm I'm done. I'm not interested in classical guitar, and I I love it. I have great respect for classical guitarists, but really for me, you know, the what I'm taking are elements of flamenco and mixing them with elements of jazz and just you know whatever I want to do with the instrument but it you know it's it's far from classical i i, I know that they all you know it, from outside they may all seem similar but once you're inside it it, it really feels quite different right know? right i kind of just lump it together because people who play with their fingers and play in a classical style guitar it, it just kind of is a catch-all for phrase for me i know it's a misnomer but yeah they're kind of worlds apart you know it's like uh you know it's it's funny because when i first saw flamenco guitar it was being played um you know in the south of france and in spain and in spain guitar is a religion like the level of playing in spain is just insane it's 
so good, like so incredibly good, the, the guitar players there. But then once you leave Spain, people really have very little knowledge of that, of, you know, that kind of level of guitar playing. And, and quite frankly, not that much interest. You know, I think still there's, you know, way, way more people interested in, in rock guitar. But, uh, but interestingly, flamenco has, I feel like rock guitar, you know, when I, when I was a kid, everybody wanted to be a rock guitarist. You know what I mean? Like that was the instrument. And, and then at a certain point, I know, um, you know, turntable sales started beating guitar and you were like, what happened there? What's going on in the world? And, and like, when was the last time you were listening to a pop tune and you heard an electric guitar solo in it? So I feel like maybe rock guitar enjoyed 50 years of being in the sun and, and then the world will move on to whatever the next thing is. Maybe it's EDM or synthesizers or who knows? I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to guess on that, but Meanwhile, flamenco has always been a little bit on the outside, you know, flamenco guitar, but it's also always enjoyed this weird place where it just keeps coming back. You know, in the, in the 30s and 40s, there was Carlos Montoya, and then later there was Sabicas, and then there was Paco Delicia, and then there was the Gypsy Kings, and I feel like every 10, 20 years, suddenly there's this kind of influx of flamenco music in the world, loves it and embraces it again. It's never mainstream, but it's always there, and it just keeps coming back. And, you know, modernizing each time, it's a little bit more modern, it's a little bit more, you know, a little different, but the, the roots are there. Mm. So sometimes, maybe, you know, maybe not being number one is what keeps flamenco alive, keeps it being relevant, you know, whereas... Like who knows if the if the electric guitar will still be uh, you know important to music you know in another fifty years or maybe we'll leave it behind I don't know I'm not a you know I'm not in a position to judge but it's it's funny how this all works like do you remember saxophones I mean saxophones ruled the world right. in the fifties and now they're you know nobody wants to hear a sax solo in a pop tune it just well, doesn't happen right that, that's it's, thankful for me because I'm not a saxophone fan. <laughs> 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 if anybody asks me what my least favorite instrument is, it's the saxophone. <laughs> I like it in a horn it, section, but the solo, I don't like the solos. Too... But you know what I think? It is? I think it's that we, you know, people, we, we get interested in a certain sound. We start loving it. Suddenly saxophone, you know, of all the orchestral instruments, saxophone sort of became this dominant thing in popular music with bands like the Coasters or whatever in the 50s. Um, and then and then it gets overplayed, and maybe that's what happens. It gets overplayed, and people are like, okay, I don't want to hear that anymore. And then the saxophone stops being popular. And, you know, and, and then these kind of waves of being popular and going out of popularity, who knows? I, it's, it's a funny thing how the ear works, how our taste in music works. You oh, know? yeah, like that's, that's... Maybe the next generation doesn't want to be associated with whatever their parents were listening to, right? Oh, like, yeah, that's usually that. the case. That definitely, That's probably why I don't like saxophone music, because my father likes the coasters and that kind of... You know, that doo-wop kind yeah, of yeah. 50s -y stuff, and that's probably why I don't like it. Yeah. I think we started playing guitar around the same time. I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, and I started a little bit later than you, so it was probably the same ballpark time we okay. started playing guitar. When was that, like 1971? Yeah, uh, 74, 73, 74 is when I started. Okay. So oh, okay, yeah, yeah. What time? Well, how old were you when you started? Depends which which uh, what you consider starting. So my mom claims when I was two, we were living in Barcelona, and I had a little toy guitar, and she claims I used to walk around the apartment, you know, strumming it and singing. I, you know, once I had a kid, and I saw what that looked like, I was like, okay, that's not playing. <laughs> <laughs> 
But when we moved to Canada, and uh, when I was about six, she found a guitar teacher who was willing to take me on, and and that's when I started lessons. And my first teacher, oddly enough, was a flamenco teacher. And then as I got better at the Guitar Academy, they passed me up to the classical teachers because the better teachers were considered the classical teachers. And and I got it got to the point where they wanted me doing guitar competitions, and they were like, you know, you could be really really good. You should be practicing three hours a day every day. And, and I was just a kid, you know. I I, mm. I wanted to go play basketball. So by the time I was 13, I, I didn't love classical guitar. I, I didn't love the repertoire. And the weird thing was, like, I would go to concerts and see, you know, Julian Bream or Narcisco Yepes or any of these guys. And they would be playing the same repertoire I was. And I was thinking, what's the point? You know, if we're all, <laughs> if this is it, your whole life, you're just going to be playing these, this small collection of classical guitar songs. So I, I, I left it behind and, you know, I played in rock bands as a teenager and i also you know did my own recordings where i was playing more flamenco guitar and as i got older it, it was this thing that just cut coming around through my life my my dad who uh had continued to live in europe he ended up retiring to Arles in the south of france and and moving buying a house that was right next door to this the lead singer of the gypsy kings the band the gypsy kings oh really so he was living yeah he was living in the gypsy barrio of Arles, this little town in the south of france and it wasn't just the gypsy kings all the kids like you know all the gypsy kings would be out playing in the streets playing guitar and strumming it like a you know, like a percussion instrument, banging the the front of the guitar, you know, just doing this incredible rhythm. They sound like the whole band. And when I would visit my dad, I was in my teens at that point, and and I was completely knocked out. Like, you know, you don't see that in, or you didn't see that in North America. That style of playing. No, and, you didn't. And I was just like, what are they doing? That's amazing, right? So I there was always this kind of interest for me of what you know, learning that and getting into that. And then I went to Berkeley, and and I had a flamenco guitar, but they were they didn't want to teach me. They only wanted me to learn on an electric guitar so i i luckily i owned a les paul and i would take my les paul to classes and then when i go home i practice on my flamenco so it was always, there was always this kind of double life for me with a foot in each world you know the kind of jazz world and then the other foot was in the, the world of you know this kind of more ancient guitar form and i eventually when i became an adult the the one that i kept going with was the one that was sort of just touched my heart the most and that that was the flamenco and that here i am well it's it's done it's done wonders for you you've got 55 million plays on spotify 300 million on pandora you got 25 million youtube views and it's all and counting and you've won 10 gold and platinum albums uh you've got juno awards you've sold a few million albums you've had five pbs specials so i, I think you've done well i think you've done right <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, you know, I if you'd asked me when just like before I went to Berkeley, if you'd asked me what do you want to do, I would have told you I want to be a concert guitarist. And if you'd asked me after just after I graduated from Berkeley, I I would have told you, oh, I don't want to be a concert guitarist. Being in the public eye, you know, it, it, it's impossible. Everybody wants to do that. You know, I I just want to be behind the scenes. I'll be a composer, or producer. You know, and that was what I did in my twenties. You know, it was really just at the end of my twenties that uh, friends of mine were saying, you know, your your best music that you write is not it is not this these scores you're doing for a film or TV or whatever. The best if you do is your guitar stuff you should make an album of your guitar music and, and i and i kept trying to talk myself out of it you know i was like oh no nobody's going to be interested in that and of course the weird thing was as soon as i made my first album which was tempest my life changed and became infinitely easier you know suddenly 
I, I was kind of running around trying to find a job. Suddenly, I was doing concerts, and you know, and the world was like, "Hey, right this way, sir." You know, we are, you know, we've got a concert waiting for you. It was fantastic. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I, I felt like the luckiest guy in the world. Yes, and the thing that I noticed is that this tour that you're out is the Tempest Two tour because you're celebrating the, the 25th anniversary of this recording. Well, it's technically a little late now, right? Though because of COVID. <laughs> We didn't know what to call it, because two years ago, before the uh, before the pandemic, it would have been the Tempest 25 tour, but now it's the Tempest 27 tour. That's nothing. What is that? That's not a thing, right? <laughs> so we're like, should we just forget the, 20, the Tempest thing? But we'd already made the albums by then, you know what I mean? We'd had them printed and everything. Like, well, we can't ignore this, right? And people want to celebrate the 25th anniversary. And we said, well, we could call it Tempest 2, because I feel like we've all been through a bit of a storm the last couple of years. Right. And maybe that's so. That's where we are. Now, are you touring with a band or completely solo? Uh, with a band, always. I've always toured with a band. Oh, okay. Because that was the other thing, too, is I, I was wondering, like I said, I... I came into this one blind. I usually interview people. I know a lot about them, or at least know a little bit about them. You, I was completely in the dark about, and I had to go from from ground zero to to get my whole knowledge of you and overnight. You know, I listen to a lot of the music, and I'm hearing a lot of stuff, and I'm hearing that a lot of the other stuff going on is very integral to what's going on in the recording. And I know some people will come and they'll just play a stripped-down show. What kind of instrumentation is in the band? So uh, when I tour, I tour with a five-piece band. So wow. it's, there's two there's two guitars. That's me and another guitarist. We both have MIDI systems attached to our like acoustic flamenco guitars, so we can actually be playing strings or synths or weird sounds with the guitar at the same time. And then we also have a drummer and a percussionist. We have a bass player. Uh, and then we have a, a fantastic violinist who also plays mandol and gumbre and all these other world music instruments. He's from Algeria. His name's Feti Najim. And he's, he's fantastic. Just, you know, brilliant, brilliant musician. So he recorded... Um, so, he, he was mentioned in the um, in the liner notes or as, as a... He's a multi-instrumentalist. Multi-instrumentalist. He was mental as prominent in the recording of this uh, this new album, Libra. Yes, that's right. He, he in fact, co-composed some of the material on the album. Uh, he's a guy that I met, I guess, about four years ago. He had moved from Algeria to Paris, and then from Paris he moved to Canada. And I guess I met him about a year after he moved to Toronto. And the more I kind of worked with him and saw all the things that he could do and bring to a project, you know, I, I came into the studio thinking I was going to do one thing. And before you know it, we were writing a song together. I mean, he just he brought so much to everything he did. So just a, a great, great talent and lovely guy. So, yeah, for sure. It's, he, he was a big part of the album. And, and it's a big part of the show. I mean, they, they all are. I don't want to give the impression that the... The band is just there behind me, you know. They in this show, I kind of feel like they're all amazing soloists in their own right, and everybody gets a chance to shine. So, and we have the daunting task of trying to represent albums where, you know, in the studio, if you can add as much as you want, you know, right. you can have a cast of thousands on your on your album. And then when you go out and play it live, you've got to try and somehow get a sound that's at least that big or represent kind of feels like that live. And we don't play with tracks. I know a lot of people will play with pre-recorded tracks. We, everything we do, we do live. So that's good because I'm, it, I'm not uh, a fan of tracks. Oh, me neither. It's, it's like, why would you pay to go and watch somebody hit play on a recorder? Right, right. One of the things I was wondering is, and since you're Toronto-based, and Toronto's a very multicultural city, has that influenced your music view and your style of music and the and the kind of music that you incorporate it into you, what you're doing? 
what actually that it's interesting you say that because you're I think one of the first people who's mentioned that people often will assume because my music has this very kind of world fusion sound to it that, that somehow it's because I've traveled a lot but in fact no I you're absolutely right it is Toronto is apparently the most multicultural city in the world in the sense that there are kind of large communities from so many different parts of the world where you know some cities will have a samba school of Brazilian percussionists. Toronto has six, you know what I mean? Uh, we have, it's, there's all these weird statistics on Toronto being like the third largest Caribbean city in the world. You know, first is Kingston, Jamaica, second is Havana, Cuba, third is Toronto, Canada. You know, it's that kind of thing where there's just, uh, you know, there's not one group that is sort of a, a majority. It's just a series of different minority groups, all of us, including people, you know, European descent. So if you want to make world music, if you want to make music where, you know, you've got Armenian, Duke, Umbre, and, uh, you know, the Argentinian Mando all in one song, and you know, you've come to the right place. Like that's, there's just so many great musicians from, you know, different parts of the world all living there. And growing up there, you know, there were just things that I did because that's what people were doing. I was in a West African drumming ensemble for a while. I played in a Brazilian ensemble school for a while. I was up at York University where everybody was studying South Indian Burdungam. You know, it's just one of those things where, you know, you are exposed to those types of music. And then as a composer, when I sat down wanting to write music, I just wanted to incorporate all that into what I was doing. And uh, it just made the music somehow richer you know like once you've heard a brazilian samba school of like 50 guys hitting really big drums the idea of just using a regular drum set seems kind of boring you know what i mean you're like no <laughs> i want that so i want the whole earth to shake when people hit those drums you know what i mean that's my vibe one of the things i was wondering is uh you re you do your own films you're you're a film editor as well and you you do all your editing of your your videos and such right yeah so i um your parents were filmmakers. Both my, both my parents were filmmakers, exactly. My, my mother, television producer and director, for a show in Canada called The Nature of Things, which uh, got repackaged in the States as Nova. You know, people who are a little older might remember that show. I remember uh, that. I used to watch it like quite a bit. Yeah. So, And then my dad lived in Europe, and he was a filmmaker in Europe. But, uh, he made feature films. So there was a lot of that kind of growing up talk about films cameras and my uncle was a photographer there were lots of photographers around but i didn't get into it until my mom retired my dad passed away you know it I, it was just a bit too intimidating there were too many people who would be kind of looking over my shoulder going what are you doing no that's not how you do that you know what I mean? but once, <laughs> once everybody kind of left the field i sort of picked up a camera and got interested in it and started making my own music videos and and it was interesting because before that you know the record company in the early days the record company would hire a director and the director would make a video and some of the videos i liked a bit and but some of them were terrible like i was embarrassed that you know people would think this is somehow my vision there was the original video for tempest had this amy totally gratuitous kind of sexy dance thing going on that just felt embarrassing like mm. just too try hard and and I was like, oh my God, what's going on here? So when I once I started making my own videos, I, at, least, at least I felt like they somehow represented me, you know, and what I, what I was focusing on. And most of the time I was just focusing on the actual performance of the piece of music. And then I made a lot of music videos over the years, and then I actually produced a bunch of PBS specials. And then the last PBS special, I, I directed it and filmed it with one guy. And it's just the two of us did the whole thing. And then I edited it, mixed the sound, and it was just so much fun that i was like why not if i can do it why not do it exactly i mean it, it 
I think a lot of artists and musicians have a lot of things in common where I, I'm kind of the same way. I, I have a degree, I have a master's degree in art, and in addition to playing guitar, I do photography. I, I uh, was graphic designer and stuff, and I tend to incorporate all this stuff and tend to do a lot of the stuff myself and I'm starting to get into try to work my way into video editing now and I'm doing the audio editing on these podcasts and it I just feel like you know it's all part of the process you know it's all part of the creative process to do it totally and the interesting thing too is because for years I, I I've always mixed my own albums recorded and mixed my own albums and once you start doing color grading for your videos you realize that light and sound are basically just different speeds of waves, but it's all the same information. That right. when you're when you're pl- applying an EQ curve to audio, you know that makes the the high end sort of a bit brighter and the bottom end a bit warmer. You know, it's exactly like you know adding a, a high contrast curve to light, which makes the bright parts of the image much brighter and the dark parts much darker. And you're you're going, oh my god, this is all the same. It's just you know we don't perceive it that way. Right. Right? We use our eyes to look at certain kinds of waves and our ears to listen to other types of waves. It's fascinating. Well, especially these days when it's all on computer, too, and it all kind of it's just stuff on the screen. You're just tweaking knobs and pulling the mouse clicks and stuff. And it's, yeah. It's, I mean, it, you it still is need, amazing. You need the knowledge, yeah. to, to the basis of the knowledge to do that, but that's what it's come down to. It's all clicks in a mouse now. Yeah. No, it is. It, it's amazing. When I first started, uh, I had. I had spent, you know, I built my first recording studio when I was about 15 in my mom's basement. And by the time I did Tempest, I, I had a full recording studio. I'd just been slowly amassing gear and, you know, building an actual, like, recording studio behind my house and a coach house. And, and it was just full of gear. Well, then, little by little, it, it all kind of collapsed down to just a laptop, you know, right. and all that gear is sitting in my basement in storage now because you don't need it anymore. Everything's in, in, in the box, as they say. It's all right. in the computer, you know. You know, the actual hardware is kind of old-fashioned. You kind of stepped backwards when you were recording this album because you said you were inspired by K-pop and your daughter's like of K-pop and, you know, the pandemic and such. But you're using this Roland TR-808. Is that a drum machine or is it a sequencer or what is it? So the 808 uh, originally was a drum machine. It came out in the 80s. I remember we, you know, I, I remember renting one using it for stuff I was doing in that basement recording studio at my mom's place. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to be careful about the use of K-pop, because most K-pop, i got to tell you, I, I have no interest in it. It's, just <laughs> <doesn't>, <laughs> it's not... I just know, I see K-pop, and I know, well, that's not something I want to listen to, because it's just, yeah, I just, exactly. I've seen that kind of stuff. The only reason I even brought it up, because it was mentioned in the stuff that I was reading about you, I don't, oh, I don't oh. even know if it, if I heard any inspiration, I was more interested in the Roland because that's yeah. that said that was your part of the inspiration behind this album was using that. So well, I think there's a there was a one band called Blackpink that had about three or four songs that were inspired by trap. What is so, trap music? Explain that to me because so, so trap music is something that you know comes from the United States and it's quite you know it's been really the last uh, I don't know, ten years it's kind of emerged and it's using primarily the eight oh eight drum machine or sounds that are like it like what's happened is the 808 from its kind of origins as a a drum machine in the early 80s where digital sampling hadn't really become a thing it was still very expensive so the 808 was using a kind of form of synthesizer to try to replicate the sound of drums and it and it didn't do a very good job of sounding (laughs) like real drums but it 
it was kind of an interesting otherworldly sound that was so terrific that people loved it. And then you ended up hearing it in all sorts of pop music. And what and then as better quote unquote better drum machines came out, they were using digital samples of actual drums and people started immediately switching to those. But what was interesting is that time went by, this funny little drum machine from the early eighties kept coming back and and becoming more and more sort of dominant to the point where now you almost never hear anything on the radio or anywhere that's not using at least one or two 808 samples, if not the whole thing, be, you know, 808 or 808 inspired. Like there are a lot of drum machines and sample libraries that are, you know, different versions of 808 type of drum sounds, you know. And, I, you know, I think um, Kanye West had an album that was called, uh, what is it, you know, something in 808s. And, you know, lots of people, uh, um, Alicia Cara has a, a lyric in one of her songs where she's just, you know, just leave me with my 808. So, like, you know, it's it's kind of got this cachet, 808 grum sheet. So my daughter was listening to this music that was kind of a trap music inspired and kind of amazing. And it's funny, I literally anybody I've said, you know, listen to this music, none of them listen to it. And then one person I actually had them, that, like we were on the tour bus, and I said, have you listened to this music? And they're like, no. <laughs> and I, I said, okay, I'm putting it on. So I put it on and blasted it. And the, this is the bass player in our band. His eyes got wide. Like he couldn't believe it. It was so intense. It's like this. But I think people understandably have an aversion to K-pop because I think often it's, you know, it's designed for 13-year-old girls, really. Mm-hmm. And you sort of think, well, let's, uh, that's not going to be interesting to me. But somehow this group, Blackpink, had three or four songs that I thought were kind of remarkable. Uh, and then they went right back, afterwards, they went right back to the usual kind of, you know, K-pop stuff that, again, doesn't, doesn't interest me. I mean, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm sure it's fantastic if you're 13 years old. <laughs> but uh, for me, it wasn't really my thing. So, uh, but nonetheless, yeah, the 808s, uh, it wasn't just the 808, it was the whole idea, the whole way the production, the, the, the trap music sort of came together uh, and trying to take trap music and apply it to what I do, which is world music and, and these instruments that are ancient, you know, like uh, the the way Fetty plays the violin or when he's playing the, the gumbe or when, you know, the playing a guitar. These are instruments that have been around for hundreds of years, and and the, and the tradition has been around for hundreds of years. And the the way you play them, you know, there's this you can feel that there's this kind of ancientness in it. And then when you marry it with this ultra modern sounding, you know, drum beat, it kind of there's something wild about it for me that I just find you know really compelling. Gets the hair standing up on the back of my neck, and off I went. Did you ever hear of the Afro Celt sound system? Oh, I loved Aprocalf. I actually recorded some tracks with them in London. Oh, wow. They played on my album, and I played on theirs. Oh, yeah. I I had never heard of them, and I went to England, and my friends in England were listening to them, and I was just like, wow, what is this stuff? And and I, you know, I have a bunch of their albums, and I love their stuff. And that's what I, in this album, that the track, the, well, the first track I heard from you, the the... The Orin, that's the track that they sent to me. Yeah, yeah. I heard the Afro-Celt in that. That's that's yeah. that's the kind of sound it is, especially that instrument that Fetty is playing, I think it is. What is he playing? So it's a violin. That's a violin, but it's, he's playing it the way they play it in North Africa. Oh, okay. Right? Like, they, don't, they, don't put it, they don't put it under their chin and play it the way they did in Europe. They play it, put it on their knee, and they play sideways, almost more like a cello. Oh, I think that uh, Afro-Celt were kind of a super group. They came out of the Peter Gabriel, real world record kind of, you know, that that whole community of musicians that were in London at that time and, and interested in that world music at that time and the idea of put, bringing music together. So I feel like they were inspired by Peter Gabriel and I was inspired 
inspired by Peter Gabriel, and I feel like we both ended up kind of coming to that type of music. My version of it obviously has a lot more of Spain in it, and their mm-hmm. version has a lot more of Ireland in yeah. it, you know what I mean? But the rest of it sounds very familiar. It's like, oh yeah, we all like the same things here. So I think when we, I think on my album Nomad, I reached out to them and just to see if there was interest, and they were like, oh my god, yeah, let's do something. So I recorded some guitars for one of their albums, and then and then ended up going there to their studio. They actually were recording in the old Led Zeppelin studio, I believe. Really? And yeah, I spent like about a month kind of there recording with them and producing some tracks for my record, and and they introduced me to Hossam Ramsey, who actually was the guy who put together the whole kind of Egyptian string section for the song Kashmir. Oh, wow. That's cool. And Hossam Ramzi invited me to go to Cairo and do something similar in Cairo where he brought a bunch of friends and some string players in and we, you know, on that album kind of went crazy with it. It was really fun. So, that, yeah, I love the Alfred Cult guys. They were oh, really, uh, they had a big influence on me for sure. See, that was just like, that was a left field thing that I just was throwing in there because I, you know, a lot of, most people I, I talk to about it, they've never heard of Alfred Cult Sound System. And I, I just love them. I just love that. I used to listen to those CDs on repeat for hours because they were just so cool. Yeah. And like I said, when I heard this track, Oren, for you, I heard this, like, it has a little bit of a Middle Eastern feel to it, too. Totally. You know, it's those yeah. those Middle Eastern scales that kind of predominate, yeah. and, and it's just like I said, I you know, and now knowing that you're with the band, my whole my whole viewpoint of what I was approaching with this interview has changed 180 degrees, and I'm like, wow, I have to go see this show because this sounds really. <laughs> I mean, l- really, after listening to you for the past couple of hours this morning and reading about you and talking to you, it's like this is a show that I really think I would enjoy because you've got some great sounding music in there, a talented player. Players. It's it's not going to be, I, I you know, honestly, like I said, my ignorant approach to it was like, oh my gosh, it's going to be a snoozy classical guitar player. And I was like, this is the furthest yeah. thing from it. And I, no. I, I apologize if I came off like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's but, all right. No, I realize it's, it's because it's not music that most people are going to kind of bump into. You know, right, the, the, exactly. the music I do, it's not on the radio. It's not something where, you know, you, you live your life, you know, like everybody knows the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Taylor Swift and whatever, because it's everywhere. Whereas mine is so off the beaten path that, you know, most people have no idea. And, and I think I, I actually get asked that con- that question frequently, people saying, you know, so is this a solo guitar concert? It's like, no, it's, it's not at all a solo guitar concert. And and what's more, like, you know, uh, there's an impression that you should bring your opera glasses and all that. It's like, <laughs> no, bring your dance shoes. People are up dancing by the end of the concert. Every night. You know, it's just not that kind of show. Well, it is. So, it, like I said, that's why I kind of wanted to do this, this uh, thing. Number one, because I'm a guitar player. I really appreciate guitar guitar number two i really like the narrows the narrows is a great venue uh and then like i said number three i got you know your pr people were so good at sending me stuff and really hammering at home and and it's good thing because it's just opened my eyes to this this music which i really like now so i mean you've just added me as a fan and I'm hoping that people people that listen to this podcast will hopefully they'll hear it and say, "Wow, I got to go out and see that because it's it really it really is it's really amazing stuff." I'm really impressed and I really enjoy it, and I I thank you for doing this stuff because I really do enjoy it. Oh, thank you. Nice of you to say that. And uh, well, thanks for having me on your show. 
Okie dokie. Thanks to Jesse Cook for being part of this episode of the Roots Report podcast. Jesse and his band will be at the Narrow Center for the Arts in Fall River on June 23rd. The Roots Report podcast is presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Grace Ale Brewing of Rhode Island, and SE Microphones. Thanks for listening. Thank you.